Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. For this lesson um, on the center of your table, you might want to follow along with me today. My grandfather built this house just outside of Marble Falls, Texas in 1977 when I was four years old. Now I'm sorry that this is the best picture that my mother and I could find. She told me to remind you that she didn't have a cell phone and that she never wasted her film on a picture of just the house. (laughs) So with that out of the way, uh, my grandfather put a lot of himself into the construction of this house. In fact, he lost three fingers while he was building it. And when I was a little girl, I used to love to sit by him around the dinner table so that I could hold his stump fingers when we prayed. (laughs) Now, this was the only house that I could remember my grandparents living in, and I loved to go there to visit. I loved to go there for holidays, and especially to play with my cousins like we're doing here. I'm somewhere right in the middle. It's so blurry, you would never be able to pick me out anyway. But then when I was nine years old, something truly amazing happened. My grandfather built another house on the lake, and so he offered this house to my mom and dad. And so my family moved from Austin to Marble Falls into this house the day before I started fourth grade, and I lived there until I graduated from high school. Now, our our address here is on the screen, 2807 Prairie Creek Road. And since my maiden name was Whittle, when we lived there, this house was fondly known as the Whittle House on the Prairie. (laughs) Now, it was my house, but it was so much more. I loved this house because it was my grandparents' house before it was mine. I knew the character of the builder, and I loved him with all of my heart. We shared life as a family here. I didn't just hang out at this house. It was my abode. It was my home. It was the place where my family dwelled. Well, John tells us about a family abode for the people of God in 1 John 2, 18 to 29. It's not a house, but a person in whom we live and move and have our being, Jesus Christ. We can be confident that we know the builder and that we are marked with his family seal, the Holy Spirit. And we will be able to tell who belongs in this spiritual house. So let's look at the text this morning in two parts. Verses 18 to 23, we're going to call all in the family. And then verses 24 to 29, our abode. So let's start with all in the family. We're not going to have these verses on the screen. So I really want you to open your Bible and follow along this morning. John says in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now John starts here with a curious phrase that the original audience seems to understand a little better than us. As you have heard, it is the last hour. So our first question today is, so when is the last hour? Now there are several places in the New Testament where this phrase is used, but I think the Hebrew writer helps us the most when he uses a similar phrase in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He said, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, or it could be translated, in this last hour, he has spoken to us by his Son. So the last hour, or the last days then, began with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and remain until he comes again. John is saying that his church in Ephesus in the, in the first century was in the last hour. But he's also saying that we at Temple Bible Church in the 21st century are also in the last hour. For every generation, we are to consider Christ's second coming as imminent It could happen at any moment until the moment that God chooses to return. Well, then John says, And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So that begs the question, how did they hear? How did they hear that Antichrist was coming? Well, Jesus himself told them. If you remember back in our study of Mark chapter 13, Jesus took Peter, Andrew, James, and John, our author, specifically out to the Mount of Olives to look at the temple and to talk to them about what would happen in the last days. And he said in Mark 13, verses 22 and 23, false Christs or antichrists and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So in John's church at Ephesus, many of these antichrists or false Christs have now come. So that begs the question, who in the world are they? Well, he says in verse 19 that they are not of us. And so I thought what we would do this morning is contrast the us and the them in this text with a handy-dandy little chart. It's going to be up here on the screen, but you have it in your notes. All of these references are there. You don't need to write them down, so you can just follow along. Now, there's a bit of a word play going on in the text here with the Greek word creo, which means to anoint. Christ is the Greek word that means anointed one. Its Hebrew counterpart is Messiah, So Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God 
to reconcile and reign supreme over all creation. Paul says it really well about him in Colossians 1, 19 to 20. It says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So for those of us in Christ, what's true of Jesus is now true of us. We are now the chrisma, the anointed ones. Paul says this again in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, has put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So that's the us. Those who are against the anointed of God, Jesus Christ, are the antichristos. In English, we didn't know what to do with that word, so we just transliterated it and made it antichrists, and we have no idea what that means. It really confuses us. But they are against the anointed. In John's congregation and other surrounding churches, these are people who had heard and known the truth about Jesus as a part of their community, but are now perverting that truth and actively teaching against Jesus. So let's fill in this chart together this morning, starting with the anointed ones. John says in verse 23 that the us are those who have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, God the Son, and therefore have the Father also. This sounds like family language, doesn't it? When we claim Jesus as Savior, God adopts us into his children, and it's like he puts a stamp of ownership on us by his Holy Spirit. We share his name. We know who belongs to him by our common love for the Father through the Son. I want you to think back to my cousins for just a moment. I adore my cousins, and to this day, we still get together every year at the lake like we did growing up to play in the lake together with all of our kids. But what binds us together is not our common interests, even though we have some of those. What binds us together is our love for our grandparents, even though our grandparents are no longer with us. Every time we get together, we tell stories about our grandparents and we remind our spouses why we are the way we are because we are Joan's grandchildren. We just have a different way about us. Well, that's the same kind of bond that we have, not as grandchildren, but as children of God. We abide or stay or remain in him together because of our common love for the Father. Verse 19 concludes, If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, when we abide in Christ, we persevere together to the end. The Hebrew writer says it another way in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The good news today is that God is the one that holds us or binds us together. Look at verse 20. He says, you, and he means you, plural, so that's y'all, are anointed by the Holy One. That means that we are unified or 
glued together by the Holy Spirit. I love how Paul describes this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He gives us this admonition. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And this is the part. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So one of the ways that we do this, that we make every effort to maintain unity, is to value the authority of the Spirit-inspired Word of God and to center our lives around it. The The Spirit uses the Word to teach and to convict and to train us together. In fact, verses 20 and 21 says that by this anointing of the Holy Spirit, we will have all knowledge and that we know the truth. This means that we don't need any other special knowledge like the Gnostics were proposing in John's congregation. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to us together by the word. Now Jesus told us how he would do this, how this would work in John 14 and 16. Now I gave you these references Verses 15 through 17 and 26 of 14 and then 13 of chapter 16. But I'm just going to read them all together for you. You can go back and look them up later. Jesus said this to us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom your Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will guide you into all truth. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Well, on the other hand, John says that the Antichrists among them deny that Jesus is the Christ. In essence, these Antichrists have not held their original confidence in Christ firm to the end. Because of this, they don't abide or stay in Christ, but instead they live outside of him. Verse 19 implies that they have left us because they have left Christ. Verse 23 confirms that without Christ, they don't have the Father. They don't have the anointing or the Holy Spirit because they are not of us, the anointed ones. And finally, they don't have all knowledge. Instead, in verse 22, he calls them liars who believe lies. All of this sounds super harsh, doesn't it? Why in the world would John be so upset with these antichrists? Well, it's important for us to remember what they were lying about. First, we learned this week in our homework, they were denying that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And then later, we we looked this up this week, we'll look it up again in chapter 4, verse 3, and then again in 2 John, verse 7, they were denying that Jesus came in the flesh. So just like we said in our introduction, they are Gnostics who were teaching that Jesus was not fully man and fully God. John knew that this was a lie, didn't he? He knew personally and experientially that Jesus was a man just like he was, and at the same time that he proved himself to be divine, to be the very Son of God. John knew that this was a critical teaching 
for the survival of the church. It is the basis for the good news about Jesus Christ, the gospel. I want to tell you that this morning as succinctly as I can. The truth of the gospel is that because of sin, no one is righteous, not one of us. So God chose to enter into our brokenness in the form of a human being, Jesus Christ the Son, and to redeem it. Fully man. He had to be fully man to face every temptation that we have faced, just as we have, and then not sin. Only a sinless human sacrifice could die in our place as the just punishment that sin deserved. That's the propitiation that we talked about in 1 John 2, that we will talk about again in 1 John 4. But then he was fully God, because as fully God, he rose from the dead after being completely dead for three days, never to die again. Fully God, he's able, he's the only one able to grant or credit us his righteousness by faith in his finished work on the cross. Even now, Jesus lives to make intercession for us as one who fully understands our human condition. So if all of this is true, and I believe that it is, then the only place for us as sinners to live or abide with security and confidence is in him. Romans 6, 11 said, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that brings us to our second section, our abode. Where do we live? Where do we abide? We're going to read verses 24 through 29 together. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, Haley told us last week that the word abide shows up in 1 John 24 times. But if you combine 1 John with the Gospel of John and all of the rest of his letters, John uses this word more than 60 times. Don't you think it must be a really important mark of being a disciple of Jesus? So we're going to talk about it over and over up here on the stage this semester. So let's see what this part of the text has to teach us about abiding. First, it says that a few things abide or dwell in us. Let's, let's go through these together this morning. First of all, verse 24 says, To let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now this is what you heard when you first came to know Jesus. 
when the veil was removed from your eyes and you saw Jesus and his glory as the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth, your only option was to see yourself as a sinner in desperate need of this wonderful, merciful Savior. This isn't just the starting point of faith. This is the gospel truth that informs every element of your life. So when you allow that gospel message to abide in you, when you preach it to yourself every day, John says that you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Next, according to verse 25, eternal life abides in you. Before Jesus died, he prayed for us, for you and me, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Beautiful prayer recorded in John 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus said, Father, the hour has, has come. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Isn't this a wonderful news that Jesus has made God known to us in very deeply personal ways? We know him, and he knows us now and forever. This is the ultimate form of intimacy. Loved to our core, all of our sins laid bare or naked before him, and then forgiven as far as the east is from the west. This is the kind of love that we were made for. It's infinitely better than any friendship or any sexual intimacy that you've ever known. This is something to claim right now with absolute security and to look forward to with absolute confidence. And then finally, in verse 27, he says, the anointing you've received and what it taught you abides in you. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said that when Jesus came, he would baptize or immerse us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now this baptism or anointing by the Holy Spirit is done once and it's received in full. You are filled with the Holy Spirit when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. This is symbolized by your baptism in water. But when you are anointed by the Holy Spirit, friends, you are a new creation. It's amazing. Sin no longer has power over you. We talked about this in Romans. It's still present. We still wrestle with it. But the Holy Spirit amazingly always provides us a way out if we're willing to take it. And then when we do sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us of what John already told us in 1 John 1, 9. That, we, that the blood of Christ continuously cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So the Holy Spirit convicts us and leads us to repentance. What a beautiful gift. John is saying that you have this Holy Spirit right now. It abides in you. You don't need anyone to teach you how to get it. It's yours. When he says in verse 27 that you have no need that anyone should teach you, he doesn't mean that you should never learn from teachers. I'm sure you guys talked about that at your tables. 
But his point is that you don't need any special knowledge. You don't need Gnostic teaching from the Antichrists in his day to know that you have the full anointing of the Holy Spirit. As a follower of Christ, it is yours in full. So, if all of this abides in us, where should we abide? Verse 27, or verse 24 first said that we abide in the Son and in the Father. And then verse 28 says, and again, now little children, abide in him. So in other words, we are to make our home in Christ. And the wonder of all of this is that he has already made his home in us. I hope you looked at this at your table, but we're going to read it again. John 14, 23. Jesus himself said this to us. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Did you catch the we? We will come to him and make our home with him. That's father, son, and spirit making their home in us. So what choice do we have but to surrender our habitation to him? Jesus is our abode, so we live in him. Now, when Raymond and I were dating, he lived in the house that we would together live in after we got married. But before we were married, it was just a house. I visited there quite often, but it was still just a house. I watched TV on the couch. I cooked in the kitchen, but I came and went. But after we got married, it became my home. I was all in. I moved all of my stuff in, and I was committing to staying there. There would be nowhere else to go, even when I was angry or frustrated. I went from visiting to abiding. Many of us like the idea of visiting Jesus. We certainly want him to save us, but we're not sure about living in him all the time, forever and ever. We like to keep our, op- our options open. We like the idea maybe of visiting a home group or a Bible study group when it suits us. We, we like the idea of hanging out with him, with other believers, maybe in a worship assembly. We like to join together and sing songs to him. We even maybe like to pray to him. Sometimes, when we really need him. But covenant commitment, marriage level 24-7 abiding, that sounds really scary, doesn't it? I'm here to tell you this morning that that is where all the love and the intimacy and the security that you've ever dreamed of is waiting for you. When you abide in Christ, you are home You are known and loved. You are safe. You're secure. This enables you to walk with confidence, not afraid of losing the covenant love that he has promised you or shrinking back in shame when he comes again for us, but welcoming him with open arms. We started this morning talking about my whittle house on the prairie. It was my abode built with love by my grandfather and filled with memories by my family. But I hope that John has convinced us together this morning that we have an even better abode in Christ. He is our home both now and forever. 
We know and we trust the builder. It's a wonderful place to live. It's full of love, life, laughter with our spiritual family. And everyone who loves the Father, who receives the Son and is led by the Spirit in truth is part of our family. We will all live together with him forever. So whether he comes this morning, this afternoon, tomorrow, or any time in the future, I hope we can confidently say together this morning, come and take us home, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you've made your home in us and that we are at home in you. We're so thankful that you know us, that you see everything, that you know all of our sin and you forgive us through the blood of your Son, that you have given us security and confidence in you by adopting us as your children and giving us your Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. We just celebrate it today. We praise you for it. We thank you. We, we trust you together. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>